electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli. Kramer's off today. Uh, futures are steady, reflecting a reopening trade that is finding some fresh legs in bullish vaccine data. U.S. caseloads continue to fall dramatically. Ten-year yield, one and a quarter. Bitcoin, 50K. And oil near 60 on this deep freeze. Our roadmap begins with that surge in futures. Uh, stocks are set to add to last week's record levels at the open. Then a natural gas rally and a spike in oil prices. We're going to explain the impact of that very cold weather in Texas. And later, Bitcoin hits a record high of its own, topping the $50,000 mark this morning. Carl, back to you. Guys, a lot to unpack this morning. We're going to begin with futures, obviously. Uh, Mike, it's going to be interesting to try to separate some of the uh, spikes that we're seeing in energy from the broader reopening trade. Uh, obviously, we mentioned yields. Uh, the president a moment ago tweeting that we're going to break that goal of vaccinating 100 million in the first 100 days. Uh, so that's all good news, and certainly equities reflect it. They do. Um, you know, I, I think not much has come along that would disturb this view that, you know, we're pretty much on an accelerated path towards some fashion of reopening uh, in the spring. You, you're doing better than expected on cases. And if you look at the Treasury yield move, that's been just right along a trend that's been in place for a few months now. So it's hard to say that that's, you know, anything like weather related. I don't think it's just oil prices kind of bumping the inflation expectations. That's kind of showing you the markets in general are incrementally relaxing as we go along, almost day to day, just ratcheting higher. And, you know, the question becomes, when have we kind of reached the moment when, when we've kind of figured it all out and priced it all in? Um, that's hard to say because, uh, you know, right now uh, the market is really just kind of feeding off those same forces. And par part of it is momentum. Uh, but what's been interesting to me is how if you just capture the S&P, 500. So that's the vast bulk of all equities. It's been incredibly orderly and this kind of well-behaved uptrend as opposed to some of the wild stuff you see going on uh, alongside of it. So, you know, right now it's very much a don't fight the tape, don't fight the Fed market, uh, you know, for the moment, even though we can sort of see it becoming a little bit of a everybody's already in the pool uh, type environment before long. Yeah, David, speaking of the wild things going on alongside of it, uh, you got page one of the journal this morning talking about junk bond yields hitting levels that at least historically have been associated with no default risk. So this is starting to creep up into not just mainstream media, but the top of mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it, I think, fairly recently as those yields uh, fell below 4% on average, which is truly historic when you think about it. I mean, I can, of course, remember the dawning of the high-yield market and Michael Milken in the, in the 80s, creating, helping to create that market and uh, obviously it becoming a very important uh, area of capital raising for so many companies. But I can never remember a period where, Mike, you're paying 4 percent or less on average. And we've talked about this. I think it was last week when we noted Carnival Cruise 
think they raised, what, $3.5 billion at, at a little more than 5.7%. Again, I'm, I'm working off memory here, but I think I'm roughly in that area on six-year paper, unsecured. I mean, the numbers yep. continue to come in in terms of the willingness of buyers to step up in the, in the fixed-income markets. Again, attesting to the lack of supply, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, in terms of anything that's got a decent yield on it. Right. And we're in this world where it's almost as if um, capital's not scarce, right? I mean, to say the least. And w how do things get valued in that type of environment when capital really is free-flowing and plentiful? And at least the perception is you're backstopped by somebody along the way, whether it's, you know, the Fed or something else. You know, investment-grade yields, uh, it, again, this goes back to one year ago as well. People were saying, well, on an inflation-adjusted basis, if you're an investment-grade investment borrower, you're paying zero. You know, I mean, real yields are at or below zero. And so that, that kind of changes the equation. It doesn't alter the fact that, yes, equity valuations are elevated. Maybe that means forward returns over many years are, are going to be restrained. But, you know, it's hard to say what the right price to pay is for, for equities that, you know, an earnings stream is going to grow over time, dividends are going to grow over time, when you're willing to pay 4% to high-yield borrowers, uh, get 5% from, from high-yield borrowers right now. Yeah. You know, David, um I noticed IMAX shares uh, in Asia overnight, and even this morning, they're going to open at a post-pandemic high. Uh, you got uh, the state of New York broadening eligibility to the vex for the vaccine. Goldman had a note over the weekend about pent-up savings, or what they're calling forced savings in American households, $1.5 trillion, uh, and going to $2.4 trillion, 11% of GDP by the middle of the year, uh, assuming there's no more uh, things to derail the economy. And they think a fifth of that gets spent in the first year. So, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to call these, uh, these antics on the sides of the market wild, but, I mean, we're, it does reflect the thought that we're going to be seeing the consumer return in ways that are going to be historic. Yeah, listen, that, that, and that's a, a key point here. I mean, we make note of, as I think we should, the areas of speculation that we see that we haven't seen in, in some time, or at least that are somewhat different than what we've seen, whether it be certain areas of the SPAC market or just the proliferation of this, of course, as a, as a vehicle itself, special purpose acquisition corporations, deal after deal being priced and then deals being negotiated, whether it be Bitcoin at 50,000. Again, there are many who can explain it, whether it be certain stocks, Mike, as I look at that have just had incredible moves. And it's not just the back and forth on GameStop. I mean, look, Viacom and Discovery, in my old world, you can take a look at both up over 55 percent for this year. And yet, to Carl's point, You've got pent-up savings. You've got this idea that Americans are going to get back to doing a lot of things they haven't been as we start to at least see light here uh, with vaccines uh, uh, being administered at a more rapid pace, with the virus thankfully receding. We are still concerned, of course, about these other variants that are more transmissible and perhaps even more virulent. Um, and with $1.9 trillion as well potentially getting ready to come in, uh, you know, if, if the Biden administration is successful in getting its, pa its program passed through Congress. It uh, wouldn't be a bipartisan, of course, but they could do it if they wanted to uh, for reconciliation, and that could well be coming fairly soon too, Mike. Yeah, there's no doubt that um, you know, the market does best when it's getting help that it maybe doesn't even need. So it's sort of more than covered in terms of the downside risk, whether it being consumer spending or corporate credit, as we've been talking about. So I think that explains where we are. Uh, does it mean you could just extrapolate it out from here? You know, the, the pent-up savings number 
has been kind of a staple of the bull case for months. I mean, you're able to just, you can look at it in checking balances. It's not some kind of, you know, fancy proprietary estimate. It's there. And it's been part of the bull case <laughs> since we've been talking about this, you know, for months right now. So you're up 16% in six months. Uh, you know, the, the, the market itself has, you know, really, I think, overachieved uh, in the near term. Uh, it, it, it feels and looks a lot like, you know, I can throw all these different years out there. But in 2017, where everyone said, you know, I mean, is anything going to disturb this market? Is anything going to basically give it pause? Well, what we did see in late January, early February is when a massive stampede of volume is equal to 5 to 7% of overall volume coming from eight stocks that are going up or down 50% a day, as happened in the Reddit uh, you know, craze, that was enough to create this positioning shock. And now you have a market where almost nobody's short, where cash levels are very low, and nobody's really uh, kind of cl fl uh, clenched up in advance of some kind of, a, you know, uh, some kind of an unwelcome blow. That's, that's the backdrop. It doesn't mean the market has to quit going up, but that's kind of the setup I think we have for the next several weeks. So, so under that thesis, Mike, you're not counting on uh, whether you want to call it Reddit or some other label, the, the, the marginal buyer being the retail participant. You don't think that's a, a dynamic similar to the way we saw it in the late 90s? No, I think we do have that. I, I think it, that's, that's been well in, in, in motion for a while. It is happening. It's concentrated in, in certain parts of the market. Uh, I think there's some academic studies out there saying that smaller stocks are way higher than they would be if not for the you know, retail flow. Uh, I do think you're seeing you know, ramping up equity inflows. What's fascinating is, you know, in aggregate, investors are already very heavily allocated to equities. If you just look at, you know, retail balances, they have their highest allocations in many years to equities because the market's up. And if you were in at all, you were up. So you, do you need to actually add more to it? Um, and so I think that's a part of the equation. But there's no doubt that retail is more price insensitive. They, they, they sort of buy more what they know. And it's just sort of a less... Uh, kind of rigid, quantitative, algorithmic, disciplined flow in this market. And I think that does create, like, more bang for its buck in terms of moving parts of this market. Yeah. Uh, guys, let's uh, talk a bit about uh, the energy picture this morning, which is truly dramatic. you got millions without power, uh, obviously very dramatic weather in the middle of the country, especially down south. And there's more to come. Uh, Brian Sullivan has more on what we can expect in the coming days. Hey, Sully. Hey, Carl. Yeah, what we can expect, unfortunately, is more cold weather. I mean, this cold front, nearly a record cold front, is not going anywhere, and it's playing absolute havoc with Texas's grids. Not just Texas, by the way, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Kansas, you can go up, but Texas is the focus. Texas is not only the biggest energy producer, it's actually the biggest energy consumer in the United States as well. And right now, about 4 million Texas households have no power or are in the face of these rolling blackouts. Basically, what's happened is that the demand for power to crank the heat has outstripped capacity and supply. And so some of these distributors have had to go on the open market and buy up natural gas or electricity at massively inflated rates. Will that trickle down ultimately to the consumer bill? I don't know, to be perfectly blunt. But the wholesalers are buying it at 10 or 15 times in some cases or more what it goes for in the open market. You can see people burning wood there just to keep warm. Four million without power. A lot of companies do it about 40 to 50 percent of their customers getting power at one time, then shifting it to other homes trying to make sure that some homes get power, you know, for a certain amount of time to run the heat before they have to shut it back down. That's the idea of these 
rolling blackouts, if you will. AEP Texas, about 40% of its customers with no power. Centerpoint Energy, huge in Houston. Last numbers I looked at on their website, about 55% of their customers do not have power. And Carl, it's one degree in Dallas, 10 degrees in Houston, about 3 million barrels of, of oil refining capacity are offline. Wind turbines are frozen. Some natural gas pipelines are struggling as well. And no sign this is going to ease over the next couple of days. And unfortunately, we are getting word that people have lost their lives. You run out of heat. A lot of people out there perhaps on the street or don't have adequate home. And we, we are seeing some fatalities because of this very serious story. It's going to cause a lot of questions, too, about why the energy capital of America is having trouble producing enough energy to keep people warm. Yeah, that's what I wanted to get to uh, you with um, on Brian. Um, I mean, there's, there's there's stories outside of Texas. I see Ford right now is going to be idling some F-150 uh, production in Kansas City because of Nat Gas. Uh, UPS is going to be shutting down uh, the Louisville hub for uh, a while. But on the Texas front, what do you make of these questions that they somehow decided to go it alone on the grid, didn't cooperate with other states, didn't invest in protecting turbines the way they should have years ago because they, they didn't see this kind of weather being a normal thing? I'm sure there's going to be anger, there's going to be discussion, there's going to be blame, there's going to be finger-pointing, Carl. I think you're right to all that. Listen, ERCOT, which is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, not looking like it's too reliable in the reliability part of their name, manages about 90% of the energy going across its grid. So there's going to be a lot of blame focused on them. This is something we don't think about very much, do we? It's like those containers last week. You just turn the lights on and it tends to work. Sometimes a tree goes down in your neighborhood or there's a storm. This is cold weather. This is not flooding. This is not a hurricane. It's been colder in Texas, not in 30 years, but on Valentine's Day, I think it was 1895. I wasn't around, by the way. They got 20 inches of snow in Houston. So it's not as if there's not some historical precedent for these grid managers or whoever they are, infrastructure gurus, to say, what happens if? What happens if it gets this cold? Or what happens if the waters rise two feet or whatever? There's going to be a lot of frustrated people. But right now, Carl, it's just about making it through. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I have people on Twitter hitting me up saying, we're sitting in our car mm -hmm. because we can get heat in the car running the engine. And that's kind of the sad state of where it is right now. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, Bryant's David. I'm looking at tweets from the mayor of Houston saying what you just said. We don't oversee ERCOT, manages and serves the traffic cop for the electric grid, uh, saying it's, it's not something that at least he can control. Um, uh, natural gas, just give me a quick take on sort of what we can expect there longer term, you know, what this might mean, if anything, uh, given you, call, you follow that market closely. Obviously, a lot comes out of Texas, but a lot of it also finds its way around the world. It does. And, okay, if we throw the Nat Gas board up, you'll see that natural gas is 3 bucks, whatever, on the NYMEX. You're going to go buy some wholesale contracts. You're going to pay 3 and change. There are people in the spot market, David, paying 350 yesterday. That's about the highest number that I saw. If you have a contractual obligation to deliver gas or power, whether it's theoretical or on paper, you still got the obligation You've got to go out and buy it in the spot market. Just like anything else that we talk about, there is talk of wholesale electricity prices up 1,000% to some people, natural gas 350 to 450, oil about 3 million barrels a day offline. And 
you know, I'll just wrap it up with this. The previous conversation you guys were having, okay, and, and I've, been, I've gone to 15 states in the last four months, driven or flown. I can assure you that the rest of the country, a large part of the country, is not living like we're living. Um, hard to explain, but I'm sure if you've gone to Florida or have friends there, they'll tell you. And I, I only bring that up because I think demand, if you look at traffic indicators in Miami, they're higher than they were last year before the pandemic. Uh, Atlanta, very mm. close. There's a huge part of the country which I won't say is normal, but it's not like what we're experiencing here. And I bring that up only because I believe energy demand may be higher than we think it is. Over a million people flew two days in a row a couple of days ago. I was one of them, by the way. Everybody's masked up. And there's a lot of, I saw a lot of senior citizens, guys, on these flights. I even asked a woman who's in her, I think, 90s. She's in a wheelchair. I stood way back, masked up, even though she's, I said, were you vaccinated? She said, yes. And she was going to fly to see her family who hasn't, she hasn't seen. And I thought, there's going to be tens of millions of people that are going to be va the vaccine economy that are going to bust out sooner than we think, I think. And that goes to energy demand, and it goes to power prices. Carl. Yeah. I mean, that's one reason why JPM sees uh, this uh, oil super cycle in the coming years due to underinvestment to some degree, but also that surge in demand, Brian. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch. By the way, Credit Suisse today takes Exxon from 52 to 62. A lot more from Brian during the course of the morning, our Brian Sullivan on the Texas freeze. We'll take a break here. Got a bunch of other calls this morning, uh, some upgrades of Google and uh, a downgrade of American Express. Futures, though, pretty steady here to start off a shortened week. We're back in a minute. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Another record high for Bitcoin this morning, now up over that 50,000 mark, up more than 60% since the beginning of the year after quadrupling in 2020. As you know by now, Tesla, MasterCard, BNY, Mellon, PayPal, some of the major uh, firms investing or at least integrating uh, crypto into their business model, Mike. And then you got the likes of Sheila Bear and this morning on Squawk, uh, Bullard sort of accentuating the risks. Yeah, uh, certainly accentuating the risks if, in fact, uh, the thesis here is, you know, Bitcoin becomes uh, this autonomous global, uh, you know, means of exchange and it, it threatens uh, existing currencies. To me, I'm not sure that's what's animating the story, at least in this moment. Uh, clearly, it seems like it's, it's diversification, it's momentum, it's displacing gold for whatever you thought gold was. 
um, whether you thought it was kind of a folly, whether you thought it was this, you know, great hedge or just a speculative asset. That, to me, is, is the first step in what Bitcoin is trying to supplant, um, whether it, you know, makes sense or not, whether it's the best design thing or not, you have buy-in. And then you have things like MicroStrategy where, you know, uh, just kind of like, you know, laundering Bitcoin for public stock investors. I don't mean that in an illicit way, but basically if you can't or don't want to own actual Bitcoin, uh, you have a, a stock that's now a proxy for it. And you can just do it. It's on the NASDAQ as opposed to having to worry about uh, all the rest of it. So uh, I think we're in the kind of self-reinforcing uh, mode of, uh, of, of this feedback loop that we have going right now. There's no right or wrong price for it, right? I mean, that's kind of the way it always comes down. Yeah. It's like, you know, look at that stock chart, Mike. I, but there's a lot of them that we can put up that would look somewhat similar to that. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, interestingly, when it, to come back to the market for a moment, well, now we're playing the music. Why don't we come back to the market after this break, Carl? Uh, yeah, we'll get to it. That opening bell is in just about uh, eight minutes on this Tuesday. Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Keep your eye on some travel names this morning. Uh, shares of Southwest are going to open positive uh, at the open as they not only, Mike, say that uh, February uh, was a little, or sorry, January was a little bit better than expected on operating revenue. And then the guidance for load factor uh, in the coming weeks, I think a little bit better than expected. February guide now 60 to 65, prior 50 to 55. Uh, so we will be looking to see if uh, the nation's airplanes get a little more crowded. Yeah, I think that fits right in uh, in tune with what the overall message of the market is. Uh, people assuming that we just are spring loaded right here to to sort of unleash uh, travel plans. It, we don't know if it's going to come to pass. The stocks, you know, not as far down, not Southwest, but the other uh, legacy carriers are not as far down in terms of total value uh, as you would just think by looking at the stock charts, just because they've issued so much uh, equity and debt over the course of it. But kind of doesn't matter until we're talking about, you know, something close to normalization until we're, we're you know, talking about the path there. I think that uh, this is still going to be that type of story. Also, by the way, there was a time we'd be talking about fuel costs where, where oil is, but I think we have some room before we have to really get into that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then the same thing with restaurants and minimum wage. Uh, some of those longer uh, term issues are on the back burner. By the way, uh, David, uh, I see a Norwegian did extend uh, some suspension of services. A lot of that's due to some European uh, restrictions that have been elongated uh, because of some of the variants over there. And then Fox does have a story this morning, David, that some of the Nevada casinos are going to up their indoor capacity from 25 to 35. So that's all of a piece. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, again, we've thankfully got some good news here in, in terms of the virus, in terms of new cases, in terms of hospitalizations. We're down and down sharply uh, to levels that we haven't seen since uh, kind of early mid-fall, let's call it at this point. And obviously we hope that continues. 
Uh, the experts, as you well know, Carl, continue to say, watch out for those other variants. Can we vaccinate more as quickly enough to avoid sort of the easier spread, apparently, that some of them have? There's the opening bell, guys. Absolutely. Uh, and the S&P filling in at the bottom of your screen. Keep an eye on the VIX, which did sort of flirt around with the uh, 20 on Friday, uh, Mike, currently 2157. Uh, yeah. But we'll see how much... Um, volatility traders are looking for, especially in the coming months. It's been very, very reluctant to get below that 20 mark. I don't read too much into it being a bumping higher today after a three-day weekend. Usually there's a little bit of a rebuild uh, because you had three dormant days. Uh, but what's interesting is if you looked out, I mean, the VIX futures are telling you that there's really a lot less uh, tension than there had been uh, for a while right now. The other part of it is uh, it might not be really telling you everything about, you know, the people's people's mood or their willingness to hedge because people, as I said before, the, the shorts have been covered across this market. Uh, they're very low cash levels. They still have all this retail call option buying going on in the market. And I think the one outlet for that is for a lot of professionals is simply just to hedge the index as opposed to having individual shorts that can get squeezed. So maybe that's why it's been uh, a little more elevated than you might expect. But everyone keeps talking about if it cracks below 20, there's this another category of potential quantitative systematic buyers that come in just because that says the coast is clear in their models. Whether that's going to happen or not, I have no idea. And by the way, that basically be the only category of investors that is not, David, yet in this, uh, in this market pretty heavily. Right. I mean, it's interesting, Mike, because usually you'd expect the VIX on a day on an up day. We're accustomed to to not seeing it up so much. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And so now I think it's just a little bit of a uh, retaking a little more of the room that we lost on Friday. Yeah. Um, guys, some you know stocks in particular to watch uh, this morning. Uh, we mentioned Palantir, which I want to get to. And the lockup there is something people are keeping an eye on. But did want to come quickly to M&A, if I might. Um, and get to what's been going on at CoreLogic. It's a, a company that I've been following for some time. Uh, our viewers may recall when Senator and Kinney got in there, um, took significant position, moved to replace some board members, and made a bid to buy the company. Uh, then it was in the, what, 66, 67, uh, but it did force the company to put itself up for sale. We did get a deal, but now we got another uh, potential uh, higher bid there. Not potential. It is higher, the bid, uh, from CoStar. CoStar all along had been thought to be the most likely buyer of the company. And so it was somewhat unexpected when they announced the deal with private equity at 80 bucks a share in cash. Um, but for the last couple of weeks since that was uh, announced, there has been an expectation that CoStar would, in fact, come back. And they have. Uh, All-stock deal, though, uh, which is interesting because their initial bid, which they have now told us, but we also kind of knew, uh, was also all-stock. And there had been an expectation perhaps they would use cash, but they haven't. It's .1019. Uh, it did equate to 95.76 at the open. Let's, we'll keep an eye on CoStar's share price because it did appear to be uh, moving lower. And I want to see if it has. I assume it has. And therefore, the overall value of the bid is obviously not that. It did represent a 17% premium. They're talking about significant synergies. And by the way, in speaking to people familiar with, uh, with the bid itself, they tell me, why, um, why no cash? Well, we're going to redeem uh, on closing um, $2 billion of, of, uh, of CoreLogic's debt, so we need cash for that. Uh, and they're also talking about making significant investments to deliver on those synergies, which is going to as well require cash. So two reasons why the deal does not, as might have been expected when they were thought to potentially come back here, uh, why it does not contain any cash. It's a very highly valued stock. Of course, that may have given um, CoreLogic's board some pause. There also was concern about antitrust risk and it, 
the fact that it would take longer simply to get those approvals. If you do get a second request here, it could be as much as a year. They will only have the merger agreement, they say, in place for a year. Uh, they are going to pay a $330 million reverse break fee. That is the same as being paid by private equity uh, in the event that they were to be, for example, forced to abandon the deal as a result of an antitrust review. Uh, but overall, guys, uh, this would appear to be, of course, a significantly higher bid, even with CoStar's stock down over 5%. You can see CoreLogic shares are moving up uh, significantly. Unclear exactly what the back and forth was around the end of the auction, so to speak, and why this bid was not made as part of the initial auction for the company. In their letter that accompanies the press release this morning, Corlog or, uh, excuse me, CoStar does indicate they thought they had a handshake deal at 86 and change, all stock, uh, only to find out 24 hours later that they had uh, lost that to $80 all in cash. Uh, we'll see what's next. The word out of, of course, as you expect from CoreLogic is they will study this and uh, they will make a decision as to how to move forward. One would expect, Mike, that they will choose the co-star bid yeah. should the private equity firms not come back with a higher offer. It, it would seem so. And, you know, it, just to, to broaden it out a little bit, it, this has been a very quiet sector, subsector of the market where it's kind of data and information utilities for a specific industry that has done incredibly well. Uh, I mean, obviously, the index providers and financial services, things like Verisk and insurance. So it's just sort of fascinating how this is a, a, a weird little group that I could see why private equity would be there because it's, it's thought to be, uh, you know, tough to, tough to replicate and, uh, and, you know, data only becomes more valuable, apparently. Yeah, and CoStar, to your point, has been a very strong performer as well. Uh, one reason why it's in a position to potentially offer all stock and have it be valued in the way it is, uh, but it's trading, what, 50 to 60 times, yeah. Mike. Uh, and, you know, and there is a question as to whether that is sustainable, but even with a significant fall in its stock price, its current bid would seem to be uh, uh, above. Um, guys, also keeping an eye on shares of Palantir, which um, I think they'd men we'd mentioned, or, or I think Dom mentioned at the end of Squawk Box, of course, reporting earnings. Um, and the stock had been up dramatically. But, Mike, another thing people have been very focused on is the lockup. Best we can tell from the S1, uh, the lockup expires in a few days. I think it's on the 19th. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, uh, according to the S1, the lockup expired on the third day post-fourth quarter earnings. That's today. So we're talking the 19th. And there's an awful lot of shares out there, uh, conceivably, that will suddenly be unlocked. I mean, I'm looking at remaining 1.863 billion shares, including shares issuable upon exercise of outstanding stock options, to be sold after the lockup period, which would appear to be very close to expiring. Yeah, and keep in mind, this was one of those companies that has existed for a very long time in private hands before it came public. That often is, uh, is a situation where you do have, you know, equity spread very widely throughout the company. So you have this idea that there is a wall of potential supply. People have been there a while, been waiting for it. On the other hand, the pattern has been that whatever selling often happens in anticipation of the actual lockup expiration date, and the market kind of figures that out. So we'll see if that, uh, that happens here. But, of course, that stock is up so much. Uh, since its uh, initial listing that, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, playing with house money there, I think, on, uh, on all sides. Paul. All right, guys, um, obviously energy is the leader this morning for reasons that we discussed uh, in the earlier half hour. Uh, ordinarily, David, we'd probably talk some mobility and autos um, with Jim if he were here. Uh, we mentioned the uh, shutdown of the F-150 plant in Kansas City from Ford because of the snow. But Auto Nation, I think that's uh, another fresh... All-time high, uh, Mike Jackson on Squawk earlier this morning said, at this point, uh, the horse is out of the barn. Uh, he thinks that 20% of vehicles sold in 2030, 
uh, basically uh, nine years away, will be EV. Uh, as we see continued reports this morning about Tesla looking at plans to start building in India, it's a global phenomenon, as we know. It is amazing. And, you know, again, to, to, to reiterate, though, and given especially what we heard from Brian Sullivan earlier in terms of oil and watching that, it's not as though it's going to dampen um, demand for oil right now. Uh, but we can imagine a world in which that will be the case. Although, again, oil executives would tell you, listen, we're investing less now than we were in 2013. We still need to continue to invest. Otherwise, we are going to have uh, a shortage, or even with... Uh, a lot of um, demand going away as a result of so many automobiles that will be out there uh, and be electric, uh, electrically powered. Uh, but GEM, we talked about it, Mike, so often, of course, the stock up uh, almost 30 percent, 29 percent so far this year. Uh, Ford is up 30 percent this year. Uh, and they are doubling the performance of Tesla, um, which yeah. is only up a paltry 15 yes. percent thus far. Uh, again, all of this on the promise of uh, of the continued expansion of the EV market from what still is a very small place, but of course is thought to be a total addressable market. Everybody likes to talk about that. That is enormous. Yeah, it's been fascinating. So Tesla, you know, close to 10 percent off its highs, had a ridiculous run from November into uh, into the new year. So obviously just working off some of that. But it's clear that the market no longer feels as if Tesla's the only way to play the EV theme. It's giving credit to GM and Ford to some degree for, you know, being in tune with that trend. I would also say, though, uh, Carl, I mean, the 20 percent EV market share by 2030 that would qualify as the bear case for Tesla. I mean, right now, you're talking about the estimates of people who really love this stock and want to justify the valuation. We're talking 40 percent in five years, I think. I mean, so, you know, I, I think it's a very low bar to say, you know, 20, what's it going to be, five million cars or something in, in, uh, in nine years, total EVs, if it's 20 percent yeah, of the market? Yeah. That's, that's nothing. And, and it better be bigger than that if, if, if these hopes are, are you know, embedded in Tesla are, uh, are going to come, come to fruition. Yeah, or well, maybe Mike's uh, under-promising yes. uh, with the intent to over-deliver. But to your point, um, Tesla's underperforming GM for the year. It's underperforming Exxon uh, for the year to date. <laughs> so, yeah, to, to David's point, it hasn't done a whole lot since, since January 1st. David, you know, the yeah. other thing I wanted to mention were financials, uh, not just because of the, the spread uh, and what we're seeing in, in, uh, in bond yields, but also the story about Goldman and Marcus Invest and the idea that you can now get a robo-advisor for basically $1,000. Yeah, it's very interesting to watch their continued efforts there. Uh, also, bringing those numbers way down in terms of what they're willing to pay on those Marcus accounts. I'm at least familiar with that. But, uh, uh, but Marcus is an important effort to keep an eye on, although not to take away from what has been the success of Goldman in other areas. And it still represents a very small overall uh, percentage of, of anything there in terms of revenues and or uh, any profitability. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how successful they are in sort of robo-advisors to the extent that they can do that for people, again, going after sort of this middle market, which is not something you would anticipate Goldman would have done even not that many years ago, but they are still making a, uh, an effort towards it. Um, Mike, I wanted to come to you quickly on a, another company that at least has some financial uh, components of it, but it's, uh, it's Berkshire, of course. Yep. Um, I think we're getting a 13F from Berkshire after the close today, and I mention it only because I believe it's the first time in at least four or five, maybe even six years, where they uh, cited confidentiality on accumulation of a particular stock that we are now going to learn about, I believe, after the close today. Mm -hmm. Unclear what it is. Right. Your old employer, Barron's, had a number of names that it might be, uh, but worthwhile. Now, you know, again, we like to point out in these 13Fs, they're backward looking. Sure. 
people do, though, still follow Mr. Buffett uh, and the team over there and what yeah. they choose to do. And, he, you know, he still indulges the conceit that he needs confidentiality to build a position uh, because of what it might do to the stock price. And he's probably right about that, cer certainly, if we had a sense that he was, uh, was buying something. What's fascinating, I think, about the public equity holdings of Berkshire, what's happened to them over recent times, is Apple has just grown so much to, to kind of overwhelm everything else that it, it, it sort of changes the equation in terms of what can move the needle on, the, on that part of, uh, right. of the operation right now. That's a good problem to have. Uh, I mean, I think he's, you know, from the low last year, uh, the Apple position probably uh, went up 10 times whatever he might have lost in airlines. Everyone wants to talk about he sold airlines at the low. Guess what? You know, he made multiples of it by just holding on to Apple at this point, Carl. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens this afternoon, uh, if, in fact, it's coming. Guys, overall, uh, record highs across the board in the 10-year now, one, two, six. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Good to see you. A three to one advancing to declining stocks. About 200 new highs on the uh, on the NYSE. I'm waiting for that to expand a little bit. It's been a fairly small group, though. Look at the sectors. This is the reflation trade. When you get uh, energy stocks move up, you get bank stocks move up, you get the Russell 2000 move up. Uh, and the star of the year, semiconductor stocks. There is your reflation trade uh, overall. But uh, as I said, the new high list is fairly small. One consistent subsector on that is semiconductors all throughout the year, every day. Microsoft, Teradyne, Applied Materials, Broadcom, uh, Micron. Uh, you can just keep going on down. Texas Instruments again today, right down the list. There's your most consistent group of new high subsectors. But we're also seeing small groups of bank stocks. Believe it or not, bank stocks, the laggard of 2020, hitting new highs. J.P. Morgan is one of the few big uh, large cap ones, but PNC is there. Goldman Sachs is also there. Regions Financials. There's a smattering of uh, below the radar uh, big regional banks besides PNC and Regions, which are super regionals, I call them, that are hitting new highs as well. So keep an eye on that. Banks moving up. Small groups of mega caps hitting new highs. Uh, Google's been doing this fairly consistently. Alphabet, I should say. Microsoft as well. PayPal's been hitting new highs uh, as well. But it's a fairly small group in the mega cap group. So remember the big three themes that are moving the markets because they're all firing on all cylinders, all three of them. Uh, the, the rollout is accelerating now in the vaccine. That's the most important thing. The stimulus is go big is winning. It's going to be 1.5 to 1.9 trillion, somewhere around that. It's not going to be below a trillion. That's what the market believes. Uh, and the earnings 2021 numbers are accelerating and it's not the Q4 numbers, they were good, but the market doesn't move on the Q4 numbers, even beating. It's the 2021 estimates that have been moving up. Over the weekend, Goldman increased their estimates, and this they're a real uh, thought leader here. They upped their numbers to 2% to $181 for the full year for the S&P. Now, the consensus now is 173 It was 165 just a few months ago. So here's the most important thing. You can see the numbers keep going up and up for 2021 because everyone's realized the analysts have been underestimating the extent of the economic recovery. So the consensus PE right now is 22.7. That's an awfully big number. But the Goldman numbers brings it down into the 21 level. So you can see already the numbers are starting to come down and the multiple pressure may be declining a little bit. Obviously, everyone's concerned about inflation, although the Fed does not seem to be so concerned. Bullard on this morning, not too concerned about that. We've got oil at a 13-month high. We've got copper at a nine-year high. We've got lumber 
at record highs. And of course, we've seen that yield curve steepening. All of those are issues that the market wants to believe are, but is not affecting the stock market right now, maybe somewhere down the road. What's really amazing is just what we have been seeing in terms of records. We have hit 10 record highs in 2021. And my thanks to my old buddy, Sam Stovall at CFRA for pointing this out to us here. But this has only happened 11 times since 1929. The S&P has hit 10 all-time highs in the first two months of the year. And the future is very good. In the past, at least, the S&P is up 10 of the 11 times that has hit new record highs with an average gain of about 16%. So we, the past is not necessarily indicative of the future. There is a principle of investing to go on, but uh, it certainly is a very good sign that with a start like this, historically, the full years have tended to be on the upside. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob, fascinating. Uh, thanks, Bob Pisani. It's a really good day to welcome back Rick Santelli. Uh, talk about bonds and currencies. Rick, we missed you. Oh, boy, I certainly miss CNBC in the markets, that's for sure. Although I was watching and paying close attention, let's look at a year-to-date chart of 10s and 30s, shall we? Right now, we're trading, what, 126 in a 10-year note yield? Well, that's up 34 basis points. And if you look at 30-year bonds, they're up 42 basis points. They settle at 165. If you look at Boone's, they're now at the eight-month highest yields, and that's at minus 38. Ponder that a minute. Minus 38 is the highest yield going back to June of last year. And when it comes to the yield curve spreads, I can pick any of them. They're all steep. But 10s minus 2s, basically the steepest it's been in four years. Let's go back to tax day of 2018. Lumber prices, everybody's talking about it. Well, if you look at a 20-year chart, you're not going to find uh, much higher historic prices with regard to lumber. And we all know the story there. Everybody's conventional wisdom was wrong as to how housing and building would progress, especially after the summer weather rebated into the fall and colder months. And finally, let's look at a year-to-date chart of the dollar index and realize in early January, it traded a 34-month low right above 89. So you can see it's bounced a bit. But it still is hovering very close. And finally, the biggest question everybody's wondering is, where are 10-year note rates going to go? And to that, let's go to the whiteboard real quickly. This is a very interesting chart because it basically starts and stops right around July 12 and 16. Those double bottoms, until they were violated when we made the all-time low yield of 50 basis points in the tens, this is the resistance and yield you should be looking at now that we're getting very close to 130. Carl, David, Mike, back to you. We'll check in with you later, uh, Rick Santelli. Uh, Alphabet, Qualcomm, Microsoft, and a bunch of others all protesting to regulators over NVIDIA's $40 billion deal for ARM. We're going to talk to ARM's co-founder later on this morning on Squawk Alley. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time. For now, stocks at record highs. Back in a moment. Coming up in the next hour, a first on CNBC interview with the CEO of 3M. Mike Roman, you do not want to miss that. In the meantime, Squawk on the Street continues after a break. I mentioned this earlier uh, in relation to uh, Berkshire, but tonight is also the deadline for other funds to file their 13 Fs. Uh, Leslie Picker, you know, we follow this. Of course, it's backward looking. It's never been clear to me why we care that much about some hedge funds given their performance, but there is an extra element here, I guess, with the whole Reddit <laughs> crowd that at least may sort of yeah. choose to focus on some of them and what they own. So I 
would say that's the new thing about this quarter. It's not new per se. Retail investors have been doing this for as long as we can remember. Uh, but you're right. It's something that happens four times a year. Today is the deadline for 13Fs. Uh, hedge funds and other large institutional investors. They basically reveal their holdings through SEC filings. Uh, the disclosures are dated, as you mentioned, and the positions are limited to longs, calls, and puts. No short positions are revealed. But this time, there's increasing attention drawn to retail investors who have been scoping out these filings for clues about where the so-called big guys are putting their money. Perhaps the more intrepid ones are seeking out vulnerabilities that they can profit from. That's what happened with Melvin Capital. If you recall, when a Reddit user posted about the firm's puts on GameStop uh, late last year, the beginning of what turned into a notorious short squeeze on the stock and 53% losses for Melvin in January as a result. It's become apparent on the long side, too, when Silver Squeeze was trending on Twitter. Prominent commentators on the Wall Street Bet subreddit forum urged others not to follow suit because hedge funds were long silver ETF and could benefit as a result of that squeeze. Now, some hedge funds have already released their 13Fs last Friday. Some are trickling out as we speak right now. But Seth Klarman's bow post disclosed a sizable stake in Intel, plus several SPAC holdings. Bridgewater took stakes in gold miners. Today, though, we'll really see the bulk of filings that show hedge uh, holdings as of the end of December. And after witnessing what happened last month, it's likely that many hedge funds have changed their positions in the six weeks since December, but some maybe not, guys. Busy day. I uh, get ready for uh, for a lot of reading all day long, Leslie. I'm so, so glad we have you with <laughs> us uh, to help us through it. Uh, that's Leslie Picker as we wait for more filings. Another hour of Squawk on the Street continues in a moment. Dow's up 100. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.